We have been trying to make sense of our world for as long as we have had consciousness. This has taken the shape of some really interesting theories and tests and that attempt to further our understanding of our place in this planet and how to navigate about it. Today we venture down that long and complicated road to discover some of the experiments that we have conducted on ourselves and our animal counterparts that range from interesting to dumbfounding to disgusting. So get ready for the wild and the random on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for joining me. I am Levi, and this is, of course, the Remedial Scholar. Hopefully, everyone's August was wonderful. We are now out of the Caesar months, so that's got to count for something, right? September is upon us, and there's been a full month of content from this show, which is, you know, pretty cool that it's been going on for that long now. I'm glad you're all so receptive to it, and I'm glad to have had any listeners at all if you're loving this show and haven't done so please throw some reviews our way you can do that on spotify apple podcasts as well as the website podchaser that helps us out so much and if not that just share us on the socials go to the facebook page comment uh you know react to the things and i'm going to be starting up a group for content in facebook uh here soon so that people can share the history related memes and topic suggestions and just to just discuss the show in general i uh, will let everyone know when that is up and running but you know until then if you want to do some other things to help us out like spend some money to support the show there's uh some designs on the teespring that's in the uh, link tree in the description uh there's also a tip button in the link tree and then there's also one on the captivate site that you can go to um you know if you want to send a dollar or five or a couple million go right ahead anyway that's it for this part of the show let's get to the weird and wild animal experimentation makes me think of as most things do the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy if you've read it or watched the movie, there are a pair of mice that have a small role, but they do tend to be the driving force of the events, especially in the movie. As stated in the movie, dolphins are the second most intelligent thing on the planet, humans being the third. Mice are supposedly the first, and at one point, Arthur Dent, the protagonist, is talking to a man named Slarty Bartfast, who says uh, something to the effect of best laid plans of mice. Arthur corrects him, saying it's best laid plans of mice and men. Slurdy Bartfast laughs, says that men don't have much to do with it, and that leads to this exchange, where Slurdy Bartfast says, Earthman, you must realize that the planet you lived on was commissioned, paid for, and run by mice. Arthur says, when you say mice, do you mean the little furry white creatures with whiskers, ears, cheese? Slurdy Bartfast says, yeah, but they're protrusions into our dimension of hyper-intelligent beings. I don't know this cheese of which you speak, but they were on Earth as mice experimenting on. Arthur replies, Ah, I see where you've become confused. You see, we experimented on them. Slurry Bob Fast replies, Ah, no, well, no, yeah, no. That's what they wanted you to think, but you were actually elements in their supercomputer program. Uh, the, so, yeah, the mice have been experimenting on us this whole time. It all makes so much sense now. Anyway. This episode is going to be a little different than the other episodes before. There's no real background for the topic itself, but instead, small amount of background for the experiments we will be discussing and some of the figures talked about. All the things being discussed are scientific studies, 
quote unquote. And those technically do go back pretty far, but the real bulk of the odd ones we will discuss today do not go back thousands of years. You know, in ancient Greece and Rome, there are a lot of experiments to figure out the phenomena that took place around humans, a few sociological observations, things of that nature. When medieval times came around, not the cool restaurant that I wish I was near, but the actual times of the medieval period. Most of the scientific experiments came from the Middle East nations, uh, as the Christian-led nations were not pumped by things that could supposedly challenge God's power. And it's weird also thinking about that because like all they had to do was do that creative writing thing where when you're in a in a writing box, like with a story or whatever, all you have to do is go, well, this is, you know, this is because of this. Like you explain it away. All they had to do was go, yeah, I'm observing this scientific thing, but that's because God made it, you know, and then, then, and then it's fine, and then you don't have to murder people about it, but it's not what they did. Anyway, one of the biggest examples from the Middle East comes from uh, the 10th century. Abu Bakr al-Razi was the first to institute a control in experiments, which is very important, especially considering the validity of spirit experiments down the line, and with some of the ones that I'm going to be talking about today, you know, the control is the one that's not affected. Like, you have, say, a bunch of my that you're all trying to get to do one thing well you have one control of mice that's not doing that thing so that you can basically compare and contrast so yeah that was from him for roughly 500 years the middle east led the way in different breakthroughs that would pave the way for modern scientific advancements until the renaissance came where more parts of europe began uh, where more parts of Europe began to contribute in the scientific aspects. So for this one, I'm going to share some of the most out-of-pocket and ridiculous experiments we've, we humans have conducted involving animals and humans alike. They do range from interesting with some validity to some insane ideas that have no sense of what they want to be. A few of these I have learned about over the years, but a number of them I looked up on various lists describing some of the weirdest and worst experiments. Um, but yeah, with that, let's get into the first example. The University of Minnesota in 1924, a man named Carney Landis devised an experiment to examine facial reactions to different stimuli. Landis was a psychologist by trade, looking to document the different ways humans reacted to things uh, that he would show them. To do this, he had black lines painted on their faces to show to show the contortion of the faces, and he would give them things to react to. Landis orchestrated a symphony of stimuli, an eclectic mix that included the stench of rotten eggs, the scuttle of a live rat, the allure of erotic images, and array of other tantalizing triggers. These stimuli, he surmised, would unlock the secrets of our innate facial expressions and responses. Participants were the key players in this grand theatrical production, obviously. They were given explicit instructions, react to the stimuli, wear your emotions on your face, you know, just kind of be in that emotion, and allow Landis to capture those raw moments in the forms of photograph. As the photographic plates clicked, a fascinating revelation began to emerge from Landis's laborious work. Participants, when confronted with specific stimuli, unveiled a common thread of facial expressions, painting a portrait of universality. It hinted at a shared language of emotions etched onto our faces. Yet, not all the emotions created equal in this intricate tapestry. You know, Landis observed that certain expressions such as disgust and fear stood as unwavering pillars across the participants while others displayed a little more ephemeral quality that makes sense though disgust and fear especially with the intense stimuli that will make your face do some wild stuff rather than say fleeting images that make you feel happy you know disgust seems to linger on my face pretty heavily sometimes probably too long also confusion i think is one that i get a lot where i'm just stuck in a confused face after seeing something that I deem questionable. Um, 
However, amidst the scientific notions of this experiment, it couldn't escape the shadow of controversy. Ethical concerns loomed large for the distress that Landis experiments inflicted on the participants raised moral eyebrows, which you'll find out why here in a second. The most aggressive part of this experiment is the last stimuli given to the participants. This came in the way of a live rat on a tray where the participants were then instructed to decapitate the rat. People within the experiment now presented some different results, their faces definitely contorting in some interesting ways, uh, but most of them having no experience in how to even do this task and combining that with the morality of just seemingly senseless rationale of killing a rat for no reason other than being asked to. But the wild thing is that one third of the participants actually did it, like unprompted, well not unprompted because he asked him to do it, but one third of them were like, alright, cool, I guess this is part of the experiment. And then the next third did it after, you know, contemplation and more direction, and then, so there was one third that just straight up wouldn't do it, but two thirds did, ultimately. The last third, well they got to watch Landis do it for them, which is, which is so gnarly. <laughs> like, I wonder in that sense if it wasn't like where you know the second third had to be convinced to do it the third third that didn't do it at all basically were like holding out and he's like all right well you know if you don't do it i'll do it and then they're like we're not gonna do it and so he did it just so he could be like i told you and so ultimately their choice didn't you know didn't matter but it i don't know it's maybe some mind games that he's playing with them this is obviously where bulk of the controversy comes from in this situation, and though the experiment was not meant to figure this out, it did pave the way for experiments based on obedience like those of Stanley Milgram later on. The other part of the issue with the test, uh, sans rat decapitation, is the stimuli presented can hit different people differently. As mentioned before, you know, disgusting smells are somewhat universal, but putting your hand in a bucket full of frogs could be fun for some people who like frogs while disgusting to others, like me, because frogs are terrible. And the fact that one third of the people involved had basically no issue in cutting the head off of a live rat simply because the experiment conductor asked them to. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mentioned the Stanley Milgram's experiment, and I felt that I should share that in addition to this, you know, first weird one. He was inspired by the trial of Nazi Adolf Eichmann and pondered the question of obedience and the social aspects related to it. Stanley, uh, Stanley Milgram's pioneering obedience experiments conducted in the early 1960s offer a fascinating contrast. These experiments set out to explore the depths of which individual would obey authority figures even when it involved inflicting harm upon another person. Participants recruited under the guise of a study learning on learning and memory were designated as teachers and instructed to administer increasingly severe shocks to a learner situated in a separate room. Astonishingly, the learner was but an actor and no actual electrical shocks were delivered, yet the participants genuinely believed that they were causing pain and still delivered the, you know, the shocks. Milgram's findings were unsettling. A significant portion of the participants continued to administer shocks despite hearing the apparent anguish of the learner. The experiments shed light on the profound influence of situational factors and authority figures in shaping human behavior. You know, different ethical concerns arose with this one due to the psychological distress experienced by the participants in Milgram's study, sparking a profound ethical debate. Nevertheless, his research has significantly advanced our understanding of obedience to authority and the capacity for individuals to commit 
harmful acts under certain circumstances. The legacy of these experiments continued to reverberate through the realms of psychology and ethics, sparking ongoing discussion and analysis. There's also an issue with the reason as to when people would be obedient, but it definitely gives some hypothesis for extreme examples, you know, similar to the Stanford prison experiment, which has methodology and integrity questions in the performance, but still presents interesting data. Now, I think that, you know, some when you read about uh, Milgram's studies, you're gonna find a lot of uh, things where they're like, well, these people are only doing this because they know it's an experiment, but the same kind of things will happen in real world situations not like all the time and obviously you're not going to be able to know when people are being 100 percent influenced but there's i guess like these kind of themes that fit with milgram's experiment and real life like and the things that he you know got inspired by was watching that trial of the nazi adolf eichmann and a lot of people tend to say those kinds of things when talking about the nazis especially like the lower rung nazis where they're you know they're just doing their job they're just following the leader so that's kind of where that stemmed from um but the prison the stanford prison experiment is very very popular um so i brought that up so i'm going to talk about that because that's just the way my brain's working right now <laughs> conducted by the psychologist philip zimbardo in 1971 uh stanford prison experiment stands as a pivotal moment in the annals of psychological research primary objective was to delve into the intricate web of psychological ramifications triggered by perceived power and authority within a controlled prison-like environment in this groundbreaking study partisan Participants were meticulously selected and randomly assigned to one of two distinct roles, prisoners or guards. This captivating psychological theater was set up in the basement of Stanford University's psychology department, painstakingly designed to replicate the oppressive atmosphere of a real prison and like a prison back then too. Well, you know, prisons in 1971, which were probably just older prisons from older times, not great. I mean, not to say that they're great now, but I'm just saying they were not great back then either. So initially it was slated to run for two weeks. The experiment also did not run for that long. <laughs> it, uh, not even a week they made it. Uh, the reasons for this abrupt termination were both, you know, pretty shocking and disconcerting as participants began to exhibit disturbing behaviors that exposed the darker aspects of human nature. Uh, the guards in particular quickly changed into authoritarian figures, subjecting their new fellow participants, the prisoners, to a litany of degrading and psychologically distressing experiment, uh, experiences. Experiment. On the flip side, the prisoners themselves began to manifest harrowing signs of extreme stress, with some succumbing to emotional breakdowns and even developing severe psychological issues. There's, uh, I'm pretty sure one was removed earlier than the six day mark, too. This transformation of otherwise ordinary individuals into oppressive guards and vulnerable prisoners underscored the profound influence of situational factors on human behavior. It revealed that people could adopt roles and behaviors that starkly contradicted their innate personalities when thrust into specific circumstances, yet the experiment was obviously not without its own ethical dilemmas and concerns. Might be a theme here. <laughs> the psychological and uh, physical harm even inflicted on the participants during the brief six-day period raised some serious ethical red flags. Consequently, the study was prematurely halted, igniting a storm of controversy and debate within the realms of psychology and ethics. To this day, the, the Stanford Prison Experiment remains a topic of fervent discussion and scrutiny in academic circles. This spark 
relentless criticism and contemplation regarding the implications of the abuse and authority at the paramount importance of ethical consideration in the realm of psychological research. Its enduring legacy serves as a stark reminder to the intricate interplay between power, human behavior, and the moral obligations of scientific inquiry. Also, should be noted that there are some other controversies relating to it, not just in the fact that, you know, it, like, it's obviously controversial just on its own level, but it's controversial in the fact that um, there's some there's some question whether or not the guards were acting 100% on their own, because uh, I think that it's come out after the fact that Zimbardo has, uh, was kind of giving them messages to, or giving them actions to do. He was, he was conducting a lot more than he was observing, which is, you know, a no-go on, um, different types of experiments. Like, you want a guy who's gonna be, like, hands-off because you're letting the experiment flush, but he was not. So, anyway, now, now these have all been fairly straightforward and make sense as far as experiments go, except for the rat decapitation, but, uh, you know, I think that means we should probably just get more, you know, more rat decapitation, or, well, not rat decapitation, but rats in general. Animals, animals in general. Let's get more of that in here. So the first one I want to discuss is really one of the most identifiable and probably most misrepresented datas um, in experiments. I mean, it's it's a good experiment, but it's also like people read into it a little too far in certain degrees. I am, of course, talking about the Mouse Utopia experiments conducted by John B. Calhoun during the 1960s and 1970s. John Bumpus Calhoun, a biologist who had a lifelong love for animals, noticed some interesting things when he had a smaller rat city built in his backyard in the late 1940s. After that, he decided to create a bigger and different style pens for the mice inside, eventually coming to the ones most famous. Uh, inside these, rats were generously provided with abundance of life's necessities like food, water, and nesting materials. The provisions were meticulously orchestrated to eliminate any traces of scarcity as an influencing factor in the ensuing experiment. So this journey into the world of rat societies is going to start with, well, I'm going to float around Universe 25. That's, that's the one that everybody's like, oh, that's this crazy one. So... This started out with eight rats and was pretty much just going after the concept of unrestricted population growth. You know, with all these things that you have, you have food, you have shelter, you have water, you don't need anything. How big can we get this population? Um, so the rat population within Universe 25 uh, started growing pretty quick. But as the rat community expanded, cracks began to get appear in the once harmonious facade, the very social fabric that bound these rodents together began to unravel. Rats began to, uh, you know, be a little more aggressive, a little more uh, social hierarchy going on um, than normal, and uh, these unsettling developments precipitated a significant decline in reproduction rates and a surge in morality rates, uh, mortality rates, casting a shadow of gloom over this beloved Universe 25. Rodent society within Universe 25 exhibited telltale signs of overcrowding, stress levels soared, territorial disputes became the norm, maternal care for offspring waned, stark contrast to the nurturing bonds seen in healthier rat qual uh, colonies like i said before with controls like he had other rat co colonies going on so in a somewhat uh, tragic twist of events universe 25 eventually faced a population collapse the colony met its untimely demise despite the abundance of available resources subsequent 
experiments, often referred to as the behavioral sink experiment, mirrored these grim outcomes. They consistently replicated the concert, uh, disconcerting pattern of social breakdown and population decline, underscoring the notion that certain environmental and social conditions can be inauspicious for thriving communities. These experiments have definitely caused some reactions to some. A lot of the people like to point to these experiments as a cautionary tale of overcrowding in humans and things of that nature, but realistically it is kind of skewed. Uh, yes, they did act insanely in their environment. They also did not live in an environment that provided them things that they actually needed. Like, you have your 100% necessities, like your food, your water, and a place to sleep. But there's so many necessities, like, around that that aren't included, right? Uh, there's no natural predators. There's no toys. There's no escape. No struggle except their own. They were trapped in this, and while they were born into it, knowing nothing but the of the outside world, but also how many instincts are now useless, they are stuck in this place that doesn't lend itself to any kind of uh, instinctual adapt adaptation. No way to feel safe in their environment, no way to run. This only really can be seen similarly in human lives in prisons, and even then, prisons now often have libraries, TVs, things for them to do, weight rooms at least. You know, different things that which have been instituted to prevent things like insanity breaking out. A lot of people see this experiment as a way to cast negativity in urban environments, saying, saying that overcrowding of the planet is imminent, but even in those comparisons, they fall short because the extremes of mice felt could never be replicated in a functioning city, and we can't, like, replicate it with humans at all. It does remind me a lot of the quote um, from The Matrix, where Agent Smith is talking to Neo, and he's discussing The Matrix, and he says, Did you know that the first Matrix was designed to be a perfect human world? Where none suffered, where everyone was happy. It was a disaster. No one ex no one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believe that we lack the programming and language to describe your perfect world, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. The perfect world would dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake you up from. I think that the comparison is similar, but really, if the mice had the things to do that they enjoyed and had an actual ability to use their instincts to create a safe place for themselves, these things would not have been as bad. Mice don't build cages for themselves. They don't educate their children that the life they they are now living is too natural or even one that they can adopt at you know, adopt or adapt to because there's no chance. Even the most extreme situations of mass population for humans have senses of personal safety and privacy. If you've ever lived in an apartment and made your way through the stairways and elevators and finally got into your door and walked in, you know that there's a sense of disconnection from the outside world. And this is something that the mice did not have. Mice that could not get a mate would naturally leave the area to find new mates were stuck and forced to live in a place that they were told did not want them. This is not normal. I should also mention that uh, there is an allusion to mentally combating communism that was brought up in the episode of Time Suck with Dan Cummins on the Rat Utopia. And this really makes a lot of sense in hindsight. He pointed out that Calhoun was really emphasizing, like really, really into emphasizing Christianity. That the experiments took place in the heat of the Cold War and how many people feared socialism and by extension communism at the time. There's no real way to know if that is in fact, you know, what was going on, but it is super interesting to think about. Also, this experiment inspired many things, like the uh, animated film Secrets of NIM. NIM, N-I-M-H, stands for National Institute of Mental Health, which is who funded the experiments. Also, Judge Dredd, Creators said that Calhoun's work in part inspired some of their world building in the comic where he came from. So that's, uh, so that's that one. 
It's gonna do another mouse base experiment. This one is my personal favorite, and while its results don't 100% prove anything, they do show that the um, environment matters no matter what the topic is or goal is. The environment will change the outcome, and that kind of harkens back to the Calhoun experiment a little bit. In the late 1970s, uh, against the backdrop of burgeoning discussion on drug addiction and its underlying causes, a pioneering series of experiments took shape. Bruce K. Alexander and his dedicated team of researchers embarked on a quest for insight into the intricate world of drug self-administration in animals. There's a lot of uh, groundbreaking experiments in this field. At the time, these groundbreaking experiments conducted at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, would forever alter the trajectory of addition addiction research. At the time, conventional wisdom dictated that the study of drug self-administration in animals be conducted in small, isolated metal cages. These stark, barren uh, environments were believed to provide the ideal conditions for understanding drug consumption behaviors. However, Alexander harbored a different hypothesis, one that challenged the previous, uh, one that challenged the prevailing norms of the field. He posited that the austere living conditions of these laboratory cages might be the key factor in contributing to the drug self-administration. You, know, you put a rat in a shitty cage and you give it meth water, obviously it's going to drink the meth water because it's got nothing else to do. So to put this theory to the test, researchers conceived Rat Park, not to be confused with Rat Utopia. Rat Park was this, you know, this complete different direction from the bleak confines of traditional cages. The sprawling housing colony, astonishing 200 times the size of a standard laboratory. Here, 16, 20 rats, both sexes, live together, thriving in an environment, teeming with enrichments, food, play items, ample space for mating, opportunities for social interaction. The essence of Rat Park was to create an environment that mirrored the vibrancy and complexity of the real world. You know, rats thrive in the real world, real world because there's so many things to do, like in cities, like, you know, different places. Anyway. The experiment itself was elegantly simple in its design. Rats in Rat Park were given a choice, sweetened morphine solution or plain tap water. The results, however, not that simple and also very interesting. Rats in traditional cages deprived of social engagement and environmental stimulation exhibited a you know, a very heavy preference for the morphine-laced water. Weird. Considering my last entry, in contrast, their counterparts in Rat Park overwhelmingly favored plain water over the addictive morphine concoction. How interesting. The implications of these findings were profound. They shattered the prevailing notions about addiction being solely driven by the inherent properties of the drugs. Instead, they highlighted the pivotal role that the living conditions and social interaction played in addiction behavior. The Rat Park experiment boldly challenged the status quo of the housing conditions and drug self-administration studies and underscored the importance of considering environmental factors in addiction research. It triggered major conversations about addiction treatment shedding light on the potential impact of social environments on drug abuse, served as a rallying point for advocates for more holistic approaches to addiction treatment, emphasizing the need to address underlying factors that drive addiction behaviors. It's also pretty huge in changing how animals being studied were tested and how the places they were kept in could influence the outcome of the experiment and the data itself, which is super important. In retrospect, the Rat Park experiments stand as a testament to the power of innovative thinking and the capacity of research to redefine paradigm. It beckoned us to look beyond the surface, to acknowledge the intricate interplay between environment conditions, social interaction, and addiction. In doing so, it challenged us to reconsider our approaches to understanding and addressing one of humanity's most pressing challenges, 
addiction. Rat Park definitely makes me think that while a lot of the things being tested at the time were drugs that could help people, others are the ones that people use recreationally, and now often the two are mixed with the amount of prescription drug abuse occurring. That being said, so many experiments have been done to test reactions of different drugs to see if they are safe for humans to consume. And this is not a modern idea, obviously. It's also not always just for things like anti-inflammatory or algae pills. Sometimes things happen by accident, and that leads to my next few uh, experiments. In the 1940s, also, side note, I wrote 40s as just the four and the zero, but when I was like, what if this podcast is around for 17 more years and people get confused? <laughs> so that's how confident I am. Anyway, in the 1940s, a man named Albert Hoffman was working on some derivations of fungus to create new medicine. It was typically being used to make migraine medicine at the time, and Albert thought he could do something to adapt it to other uses. You know, pretty much what everybody was doing. You take one thing that works one way, and you make some different alterations to see if it's going to work for something else. Using compounds and chemical properties which are found in the ergot that can be found on rye grains. And he uh, kind of sat on this compound for a while, but one day he accidentally ingested it. And this compound is what we now know as LSD-25 or lysergic acid diet oh, diethylamide. Oh, I think I nailed it. He only consumed a small amount and it made him dizzy as well as some quote-unquote unusual sensations. Three days later, Albert decided to ingest more to find out what taking a larger dose would do, which cracks me up. Like, I know he ingested a little bit and felt fine, but, like, what if it just went off the rails in a in a different way? Because it kind of did, but, you know, it just turns him into this, like, Hulk that just goes on a rampage or something like that. People back then kind of just risked it all for the biscuit, which I appreciate, but <laughs> it's definitely an interesting concept. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to try it, whatever. Anyway, so three days later, he's like, let me get some more of that. And had a psychedelic trip that hits him as he rides his bike, which leads to, uh, and has a psychedelic trip that hits him as he's riding his bike, which leads to someone needing to help him back. This is now known as Bicycle Day, and it is April 19th, 1943. And it's also kind of funny how it's only a day off from the stoner day of April 20th. He noted that the experience uh, left him with vivid hallucinations, intense emotional shifts, and a sense of heightened awareness. I'd like to asterisk that last one to be called paranoia. <laughs> a lot of people studied this compound in the years following, some doing some really cool things with therapeutic intentions, which you know continues to this day, things like uh, similar to mushroom therapy. LSD also became a super controversial uh, drug thanks to the goddamn hippies in the 60s. One such person who would take the drug to new places, heights or depths, uh, depending on how you feel about dolphin cruelty. Uh, John Cunningham Lilly was an American neuroscientist who graduated from Dartmouth and the University of Pennsylvania in 1942. After this, he worked with the Air Force to assist with the study of high altitude flying and the physio uh, physiology of it effects on the body and such. Lily worked on some research about consciousness and also some electrical work to measure brain waves. A lot of things in this field would lead him to develop uh, sensory deprivation chambers, also known as isolation tanks or float tanks. He's also very big on measuring a lot of things and some of his fingerprints can be found on the likes of, you know, oxygen sensors and different vital readings that are found in hospitals. Not saying he invented those, but he definitely had like some effect on why those are more prevalent than they are. And he went on after, you know, after some of the work with the Air Force, he went on to work for the wait for it that's right the national institute for mental health he's a nim mam too let's go um anyway this is where he developed the isolation tanks 
After this, he got really into dolphins and the mind of dolphins and their, you know, alien language as he described it. Not to say that he was the only one, but he worked for the government and this was, you know, and was doing a lot of research for them at the time. So there's like this weird, messy relationship going on between it all. And I promise this is all going to make sense in a minute, but a lot of his research in the 50s was really aimed at some type of beneficial uh, to maybe be mind control, which the government had many scientists working on at the time. This is also coincided with Lily wanting to study brains more thoroughly, and he joined some others in doing some tests on some ocean diving animals that were kind of related to this high altitude study before. You know, he was trying to study the phys physiology of high altitude and then also the depths of the ocean and the effects on that it can have on a mind. Study would lead to a monumental moment where some of his electrode tests that he used, um, he would use on humans and other animals where he's essentially just stabbing a rod into different parts of your brain and reading the waves that it releases through electricity. Yeah, super cool. Humans can be put under doing this, but uh, not all animals can. So the issue being that the dolphins could not, you know, be put under anesthesia because they will just straight up stop breathing, you know, which is not good. Also, one other instance made it sound like uh, Lily, in his opinion, thought that the dolphin was trying to mimic the, the people around to try and to save itself, I guess, in a weird way. So this occasion of him and some other scientists smashing electrodes and cutting into a fully awake dolphin and its cries of pains as it died, a really major effect on him. I'm not even making all this up. Like this is, this is what happened. Like he cut in and stabbed a dolphin's brain and it made some noises and he's like, this is it, man. This is my life's calling. Through the years, he would start to do a lot of LSD. Um, he got introduced to it in the late 50s, in the 60s, I think. And his kind of, his research really just went off the deep end, no pun intended. Now, similarly to the other researchers, Lily had a lot of good quality data that did open a lot of eyes to different things. I'm not discounting the good things he did, and a lot of modern dolphin science has its roots in his research. But with that being said, this like this next bit is the most weird thing you could ever you could ever think of. While continuation of his previous instances of the combination of a float tank trips and a bunch of LSD pushed Lily to try and learn the alien languages that dolphins refused to share with us because they're rude. Uh, it also led him to try and teach dolphins English. In the 1960s, he had some labs set up in which dolphins would live in flooded houses and uh, in these island areas. Trying to get the bond to increase like some companion animal in a video game or something like that would help improve their language barrier. It wasn't long before he was also giving the dolphins LSD as he felt it made them more talkative. Things like that came to a head at the notorious dolphin point experiment when his pupils essentially had this one dolphin living with this lady named Margaret Howe Lovett. Margaret worked as an aide to the research early on. Keep that in mind. She, she walked off the street as an aide to help them, you know, mostly writing notes, things like that. But after a while, you know, became a major part of the experiments and also would end up convincing Lily to let her stay at the lab and you know, further flooding more sections of this building so that the dolphin uh, she worked with would not be separate from her for too long. Now, the way this building worked, there was a, an enclosure in the lower levels, and then uh, there was like a normal floor level, and then an upper level, and she flooded an extra part of this thing so this dolphin could be closer to her. And they all already had their own tanks and stuff that they were like 
normally doing the research in. There's three dolphins total, Sissy, Pamela, and Peter. And like I said, there's this enclosure in the lower levels of this building, but Peter was with Margaret six days of the week in this other section that she basically grew into. Uh, and then on, you know, the seventh day of the week, returned to his dolphin counterparts. This would become an issue with Peter becoming a little more fascinated with Margaret. You know, at first, he just find, you know, her legs in the water and kind of like look around, studying her, trying to figure her out. But eventually, he began to rub himself on her in a very not school appropriate way. I don't want to get into super detail here, but really what happened was Margaret took care of the dolphin's urges manually. You know, and in her mind, this is to eliminate the transport, uh, the need to transport Peter back into the enclosure below. But apparently it's this big hassle. Apparently Peter... You know, when he was initially doing his exploratory, like, nudges and stuff, you know, they would, they would separate him and her. They lived for six months together, and I guess this was just not super convenient, so, um, yeah. So, in her mind, like I said, this is to eliminate the need to transport Peter back to the enclosure below and ruin the progress that she felt was being made. But here's the thing. She's not a biologist, like I mentioned. She's just not a scientist. She's not anything. She She's just a normal person who volunteered to help out and then live with a dolphin for six months. The entire goal was to teach Peter English, and I gotta tell you, I don't think he learned a whole lot. I mean, there's some audio of him saying the ABCs, but does he know what he is saying or is he just mimicking? You know, there's no way to tell. It's like, I have this conversation with people a lot. When I go, hey man, my dog doesn't speak English, and they're like, yeah, sure he does. Say, you know, treat or food or whatever and they respond but i'm like yeah but they just relate that sound to what's happening they don't actually know what the word means so this project was nasa funded and had some really groundbreaking ideas but will forever be remembered from here is that the lady got antsy with the dolphin and the story does have a super sad ending oddly enough because after the project was defunded and the crew essentially broke up peter drowned himself now like i mentioned before the reason dolphins can't go under anesthesia is because you know they they breathe manually they have to go up breathe you know and there's some speculation on whether or not he died of heartbreak or because the or because of the new system he got put into was you know not super great uh the the new place he got transported after the dolphin point experiment broke up you know nobody knows why but here's what we do know the marine mammal protection act was signed after all of the it and it wasn't directly because of this research that'd be hilarious if it was but this research definitely did help paint a picture of how intelligent these dolphins were they're not just dumb fish that are you know you, you ever seen an aquarium and like you're watching a fish and it's just kind of like floating around and doing the gasping like <gasps> kind of look like you know you know the face you know what i'm talking about this shows that they're not like that that dolphins are very intelligent you know hyper intelligent creatures and obviously second most intelligent as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy suggests. So long and thanks for all the fish. Anyway, I don't mean to sound insensitive because this is, you know, it is pretty depressing, but it's also very fruitful with the fact that the research here helps show how intelligent dolphins are, but like, there's gotta, there's gotta be a better way, right? <laughs> Either way, John C. Lilly went off the deep end and ended up being a more counterculture figure, like a Timothy Leary type, than a, you know, a government-funded scientist as he progressed further into doing a lot of LSD and a lot of floating. Maybe at the same time, maybe not. He wasn't really focused on a lot of, uh, focused on a lot at the time of this experiment not saying his instruction didn't push the car down the hill but he definitely was not driving by the end of it also kind of funky side note but john c Lilly 
a lot of his, you know, he did a lot of float tanks, deprivation chambers, all this stuff. May or may not be the inspiration for the, uh, the government guy in Stranger Things. There's no, like, they haven't gone out and said this is who we think, but there's, de there's something to it. I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's just, uh, oh, by the way. All right. So, the 1960s were insane. I will say that, you know, there's <laughs> the amount of LSD that they're giving to animals in the 1960s is a, it's a, it's concerning. I'll say that. So there's another example in 1962. And, uh, this one is given to one of the largest land animals. So on a note, Worthy Friday, August 3rd, 1962, these, uh, super, super curious guys in Oklahoma city embarked on an adventure to do something really interesting. Uh, they took the magnificent Tusco the elephant who was a very famous elephant at the time in Oklahoma City. I don't want to stress this enough. This is like a big deal. This is like, hey man, this is an important elephant. And these guys were like, hey, <laughs> I got a great idea. What if we give this elephant LSD? Whose idea was this? This is a best case scenario. The elephant sees great stuff and just kind of vibes for a bit. Worst case scenario, a bad trip elephant. And I got to tell you, I, the weird thing is they kind of wanted it to freak out. That was kind of the goal. All right. So the geniuses in charge of this idea were one Lewis Joylin West and uh, Chester M. Pierce from the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. Warren Thomas is the director of the city zoo at the time. He's also kind of involved. So the plan, 297 milligrams of LSD, a needle and a colossal animal. <laughs> now this dose towers over any ever administered to a living being at this point and probably since. Now if you're curious, 297 milligrams is like an insane amount. Like I know elephants are huge, but like a small human dose ranges from 20 to 30 micrograms or 0.02 milligrams and so they kind of shot from the hip and threw out a dose that is 3,000 times more potent than a dose uh, for humans that would inst like give them hallucinations and an elephant is what 50 100 times larger than the average human now the methodology was basically like they're a bigger animal they can they take drugs differently like essentially that was their that was their idea now, i mentioned before this venture was initiated to discern the effects of lsd on an elephant's behavior particularly whether it could induce the enigmatic state of must this phenomenon akin to temporary madness triggers aggressive tendencies in male species particular elephants <laughs> accompanied by the excretion of a peculiar fluid from their temporal glands and as i mentioned before they might have been they might have been hoping for some macabre stuff going on right there's a little fascination going on and weirdly enough this endeavor went awry almost immediately tusco's reaction to the injection mirrored that of a creature being stung by a bee you know he trumpeted cavorted and then collapsed the trumpeting and twitching and all that stuff that's the that's the bee sting the collapse is that's not what happens when elephants get stung by bees um so yeah sense of horror pervaded the scene as the researchers scrambled to resuscitate him with antipsychotics but their efforts proved futile an effort to mitigate the overdose's effects the researchers promptly administered promazine an antipsychotic medication to the animal interventions successfully halted the seizures that it was having however tusco's condition did not improve leading them to administer uh pentobarbital a widely employed short-acting barbiturate which is currently employed as the execution of prisoners like that's what they use it for within an hour tusco's majestic presence was no more over the ensuing years cloud of controversy weirdly enough <laughs> Uh, shrouded Tusco's fate. Debates rage whether it was the LSD or the subsequent antipsychotic treatment that 
precipitated in his demise. The enigma remained unsolved until two decades later when Ronald, old Ronald Siegel of UCLA, determined to quell the uncertainty conducted a parallel experiment on two elephants this time. His approach was more cautious, opting to mix LSD with their water instead of injecting it directly, and also not trying to create a hysteria in the elephants. Good plan. This outcome did reveal a different narrative. The elephants exhibited temporary shift in demeanor, characterized by sluggish movements, rhythmic swaying, peculiar vocalizations, getting really into Pink Floyd, just kidding, I don't think they were around back then, but God, how funny would that be? <laughs> Lucy in the Sky Diamonds is on in the background, and they're just like, da, 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 da. <laughs> Anyway, however, they gradually returned to their normal states, suggesting a level of resilience, and they also didn't die. So that's a win, I would say. Siegel, while shedding light on the potential toxicity of to uh, Tusco's dosage, acknowledged that the debate surrounding LSD's role in his demise remains unsolved. Worth noting that Dr. West of the uh, Tesco experiment was also a former CIA employee who worked with the MK Ultra program. So I don't think he was, you know, a good candidate for this type of project. You know, something about mass mind control attempts doesn't really sit well with people who feel, you know, that his presence in this testing was not great. All right, moving from elephants to frogs and from drugs to electricity while also jumping back quite a long ways in history. In the 18th century, 17. 80 to be exact. We have Luigi Galvani and he made some really interesting discoveries in electricity. Uh, he's an Italian anatomy professor. Now Galvani unveiled a pretty interesting revelation going on and it all started with a frog which gross but we're gonna move past that and this frog played an unwitting role in some you know understanding expanding our understanding of electricity within the body and you might be saying electricity you just said 1780 gosh you are so observant i was curious about that too i'm glad you asked uh you know at this time there were machines that would harness static electricity things called like the laden jar um you know what's it's not like you know 1.31 gigawatts or anything like that but it's enough to make a frog leg twitch apparently galvani's ingenious experiment involved applying a spark of electricity to the lifeless body of a frog and like i said made their legs twitch a little bit little dance little frog dance hello my baby hello my honey anyway so uh you know this was achieved by touching the nerves with a pair of scissors during an electrical storm at first and then he ramped up to the uh the laden laden jar to do more you know he uh after the first thing he was a little confused he's like why is this happening but he soon quickly was like i got it it's animal electricity. And he believed that there's some kind of vital force inside the animal that was being activated when he was, you know, doing his <laughs> his uh, electrical mojo happening. So, now here's where it gets interesting. Galvani's experiments were like spark that ignited the scientific bonfire. They laid the foundation for future research into things like bioelectricity and neuro, uh, neurophysiology. Those words are long. His observation got people thinking about the role of electricity in living being. Enter Alessandro Volta. And this guy, I gotta tell you, when reading about him, kind of sounds like a hater on Galvani. If, if I'm being honest, but he did coin the term galvanism, which is a chemical generation of electricity named after Galvani. Volta also took Galvani's ideas and ran with them, pushing them a little further. He's the guy who came up with the first ever 
chemical battery, which he called the Voltaic Pile, the namesake for volts as well, in case that was not super duper obvious. Well, he proved that uh, the electricity in Galvani's frog experiments wasn't some mystical force, but rather the result of good old fashioned chemical reaction between those metals that he was using and the frog's tissue. Uh, Volta's work wasn't just a one-time thing, it kickstarted the whole field of electrochemistry, gave us a deeper understanding of how electricity plays a role in biological processes. So, so to sum it up, those frog legs in Galvani's labs were like the pioneers of electricity and nerve function research. Those little frog legs. They helped us ditch the idea of vitalism and embrace a more uh, mechanistic view of biology. Not as weird or crazy as our last entry, but I found it very interesting just how far back that stuff went. Next entry takes us to the other half of the Cold War in uh, Soviet-controlled Ukraine. Vladimir Demikov was actually uh, was actually really interested in doing research regarding transplants, both organ and tissue, utilizing the subject of our first episode, dogs, to get his results. He swapped organs, bypass arteries, things like that. Uh, and all with relative success for the most part. He had bigger aspirations, however, and these pushed him to conduct a series of operations in the 1950s and 60s in which he would attach the head of a smaller dog onto a larger one. Dogs were often used by him in these experiments, so the logical choice for this was the same avenue, I suppose. He attempted this more than 20 times, but his most publicized attempt came in 1959, but the dog only lived for a few days, so not great. He used a stray German Shepherd dog named uh, Brodia, which apparently means tramp I, I that's how it's spelled i don't know if that's how it's pronounced but you know if you're russian let me know anyway and a smaller dog that i can't really find the breed for but but very well could just be a smaller mutt so attaching the head neck and one front paw of the smaller dog to the larger dog's shoulder intricately connecting the vascular system of the two dogs utilizing techniques that quite honestly paved the way for some modern transplants in a weird way. Apparently it only took three hours, but as mentioned, the dog only survived for four days. The longest of his transplants range, uh, I've seen numbers from 38 days, but also 29, so not super concrete on how long the dog with a newly attached foreign head can last. But according to his research, the attached head did react to stimuli, would drink. There's even a tube that, so when he would drink, it would just drip out onto the floor, which is kind of sad when you're thinking about it, but also the image in my head is kind of hilarious. I don't know. I don't know what that says about me. Anyway, the reason for the early death is actually kind of interesting. I figured it would be because, you know, infection or something like that, but it actually died because there was a vein that was severed, you know, just in its day-to-day -day life, <laughs> and it died due to the bleeding from that vein being severed. Weirdly enough, he wasn't the only one who attempted things like this. Scientists in France were doing things similarly in the decades prior, but you know, we don't know how successful those have been. But there's pictures of this, and it's wild. It's also unknown whether this was something that he was doing on his own wishes or if the Soviet gov government had any say in these experiments. We'll say that the government input has made some of the most bizarre and horrifying experiments in this list that I'm finding, so I will be reading through a list of some of the insane things done in both World War II as well as the Cold War by people on all sides of the spectrum. Obviously, the most notorious examples come at the hands of the Nazi party. Pretty much every subject involved was against their will and the results of many of these ended in death. They did things like force prisoners to drink seawater, which as you know, not a super healthy way to do it, which led to extreme dehydration, hallucinations, and death in many. They had vaccinations they tested haphazardly and infectious diseases that they gave prisoners to study the effects, things like tuberculosis, typhus, hepatitis, all really done to make aware of the effects as well as, you know, potential biowarfare. 
One of the more disturbing bits was stuff concocted by Joseph Mengele, who did a lot of tests involving twins, essentially with one twin acting as a control for some, some of these. Some of the things he did was inject things into their eye to change color, attempting to make conjoined twins from regular ones, amputations, vivisections, you know, just a really bunch of ghastly stuff. And it was done for study too. Like he was super curious. I'll give him that, but also just detached from the humanity that these things are tough to look at, you know, retrospectively. Japanese had some Nazi-level experiments around the time of World War II under the innocuous name Unit 731. Many similar methods and tests were done by them, but also did some things around frostbite. Many, many similar methods and tests were done by them, but they also did some things around frostbite, forcing their prisoners to become frostbitten to experiment on cures. They tested on different ballistic and shrapnel methods, both for, both for their use in weapons and also how to treat them. Most, if not all, operations were done without anesthesia. Different tests to examine stress, both mental, physical, things like that. They did pressure chamber experiments, which would be similar to the high altitude physiology tests done with, you know, John C. Lilly, but with less restrictions. And same with the Nazis, many of these people would meet their end from these experiments. The United States was not much better, often conducting experiments and data farming on unsuspecting victims. And while they weren't doing things like sending parents of twins to gas chambers and then doing tests on said twins, it's some really murky at best methodology as well. One of the most brutal and deceptive tests done was was the Tuskegee syphilis study which took place from around 1932 to 1972 the idea that the idea being members of Tuskegee community would be given medical exams by the government or government funded physicians but not told that they had all been given or had the infectious disease of syphilis super shady especially when the cure existed before the start of the experiment even happened study was directed at african-american population in the area specifically the men untreated syphilis would result in many things but ultimately a lot of suffering and death other things they did were a series of secret radiation studies done on the unsuspecting participants to see effects on of radiation on the human body one of the biggest ones was the mk ultra experiments which i touched on earlier these took place from 1950s through the 1970s and were a series of experiments that used different tactics to establish mind control experiments to establish mind control. Experiments range from behavioral modification to drug-induced mania. Many of these would be introduced without consent of and on unsuspecting people at time. Use of psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, which is the uh, compound inside magic mushrooms, mescaline, and others is more is the more famous part of these experiments. Being given any drug unsuspectingly is terrible, but I cannot imagine being a person in the 1950s just randomly being given like a heroic doses of mind-altering psychedelic. You're working all day at a madman type office, and you go home and start losing all sense of reality. Like no trippy movies or digital media to even make you familiar with the visuals like we do now. You can Google things that would be, you know, not exactly what you're seeing, but give you an idea of what's happening. Well, just unaware now everything is wavy and funky and insane and depending on how much you get you might literally go crazy this would often lead to major paranoia long-lasting trauma different things like that other ideas tested under under the mk ultra umbrella were hypnosis both to influence as well as to induce amnesia from it a lot of records were destroyed when the cia realized people were going to find out so we have no way of knowing the full extent of these programs but uh very insane to think about there's things like this that give people uh you know general distrust in the government i don't think it's that controversial take to have to you know not trust them but i think there's definitely you know some levels to it not really going on a 
soap soapbox on this one, but you know, that's that's just kind of what I'm thinking. All right, so let's look back at some of the insane things done in the name of study and science at the cost of our animal counterparts, but also our fellow humans. Did really find the Galvo Galvani story fascinating. You know, it's supposed that these experiments uh, may partially have inspired some of the ideas behind Mary Shel Shelley's Frankenstein, which is pretty cool if that's true. And also so many drugs. Obviously with the passing of time, new cures and remedies need to be tested, but holy cow, they loved giving drugs to animals. Heroin, cocaine, LSD, wasting so many good wait wait i mean doing so many bad experiments on these animals yes yes drugs bad okay anyway <laughs> so many animals in this one the elephants being dosed to an insane degree in one experiment and then just slightly tripping in the other you know that's kind of insane also made me think of the time thomas edison murdered an elephant to make a tesla and westinghouse's alternating current look dangerous or at least that's what I thought happened and then I googled it when I was looking this up and trying to confirm it. That's how it happened. Turns out men working for Edison's company did help electrocute an elephant, but the elephant was being put down for I guess killing a man. I don't I don't know elephant law and I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's just that's what happened. Anyway, seems like this story got super conflated and the argument is there that no proof that Edison like condoned it or was like signing off on these things, but you know, his company was hired to do so, but there's a video of this happening and Edison's names on it. So do with that information what you will. There's a lot of really weird Thomas Edison endorsed videos, but you know, like I said, he didn't design and shoot every single one. You know, they just had his company's name on it. That said, he did do some shady practices of his own, so I'm not absolving him of any crimes. But the argument was that the current war culminated in this event, but the war had ended a decade prior, and each system had its own uses at that point. And so the elephant was not involved. <laughs> All right. So that's it for the weird experiments. I hope that you learned a thing or two and that wasn't super depressing. And my main fear with this episode and I did not want to get bogged down in sad stories, but maybe a lot of like what the heck is going on kind of stories. I think some of these things that I talked about today could definitely have their own full episode, but I decided to follow my train of thought and hope that this made it somewhat interesting. Next week, we go to a carnival, but not the elephant kind, talking about the very depressing and super odd human carnivals dubbed the ugly carnivals. This is a term to describe the treatment of women in a former German-occupied nations, specifically France, but they happened all over in World War II, following that following world war discussing the fallout from the war and its effects on the people not just in the concentration camps but in the towns and cities that the germans once controlled how people living in these places decided to make attempts to survive and how these and how these decisions affected them later on it's really fascinating but it's also kind of a sad tale so get ready for that that's next week in the meantime share us with your friends please continue to review us helps so much and you will be also my best friend if you do that so that'd be great uh those things you know cost nothing to do and are very helpful for others to find the show check out the small merch store more designs coming soon send in your suggestions for episodes to remedialscholar at gmail.com and we will see you next time have a good week thank you